Hey everybody, it's J. David Weeder, and before I start the show, I kind of wanted to touch base on why the show was a week late, and it was actually just a series of problems. Um, I had previously recorded most of this episode as far as the reviews and the uh, topic uh, well before, and of course left the more time-sensitive stuff like the Metropolis Idol and the news for later. Well, once the I finished editing it, put it up, uh, so it was uploaded and ready to go for Sunday, I happened to uh, come across a news story that was important and you know brought it back down and went to re-edit it and discovered that there were some problems sound quality wise with uh, two, those two sections as far as and it was my fault because I it was a bad editing job on my fault on my part and in the process of trying to fix that ended up ruining the original files so I literally had nothing and uh, once I had that fixed um, I kind of ended up trying to upload it and had problems with my host and so it kind of went on the wayside along with some problems I had with an infected tooth. So uh, I primarily just, uh, these aren't excuses. I mean, these are reasons I shouldn't have, I should have been better prepared. It was all my fault. But I do want to apologize for the lateness of this episode. And, uh, you know, I'll do everything in my power to make sure it never happens again. And I do appreciate you downloading the, the episode anyway. And, uh, you know, I just hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you. No, Superman Forever Radio, the weekly podcast devoted to Superman. And now here's your mild-mannered host, J. David Weeder. And welcome back to Superman Forever Radio. This is episode 11. For those of you joining me for the first time, Superman Forever Radio is a podcast dedicated to Superman. Each week I step through all of the Superman comics published following the end of Infinite Crisis in 2006 up to the present, while also looking at various aspects of Superman, whether it be in animation, movies, television, or beyond. And this week I'm actually picking up on the second part of Superman's animated journey, with the new adventures of Superman cartoons produced by Filmation in the 1960s. By the mid-60s, Superman had not been in animated form since the Fleischer cartoons ended in 1943. Now, the adventures of Superman, uh, or the new adventures, pardon me, it would be the first television show done by Filmation, a studio who would go on to do He-Man and the Masters of the Universe in the 80s, as well as many other cartoons. Now, Filmation was kind of a studio uh, that kind of it came about accidentally. Uh, Lou Scheimer and director Hal Sutherland, they met while working for Larry Harmon Pictures, which produced Bozo the Clown. The studio shut down, and the two were approached for some uh, sort of freelance animation work for a Japanese company called SIB Productions to make a show called Red Rocket. And this led to some more work producing animated shorts on The Life of Christ, and the two at the time were working under the studio name Trueline. Now, by the time the New Adventures of Superman came along in 1966, the company had become Filmation. The New Adventures of Superman featured an interesting format, in that the episodes were half hour long, and featured two six-minute Superman stories, and one uh, six-minute Superboy story right in the middle. 
and the show premiered uh, with this format on CBS on September 10th, 1966. It proved highly successful as a Saturday morning show. In the first season, there were a total of 36 Superman shorts and 18 Superboy shorts. By comparison to the Fleischer shorts, the filmation animated style was very basic. Uh, Stock footage was frequently used, and the characters were really limited in their movements. Frequently, the same shots of Clark changing to Superman would be used, as well as uh, generic flying scenes. Season 2 would change the show into the Superman-Aquaman Hour of Adventure, which would include segments of Aquaman as well as shorts based on pretty much the entire DC Universe. And this season would feature only 16 new Superman shorts and 8 new Superboy shorts. And the 1968-69 season, which would be the series' third and final season, changed the show to the Batman-Superman Hour. And the major change here was that the Superman segments would actually be two-parters, and the Superboy segments would remain one-part episodes. And, of course, that included the adventures, uh, the new Adventures of Batman shorts. And this would be the final 16 Superman episodes and the final eight Superboy shorts. The series throughout would feature a primarily accurate portrayal of Superman's Silver Age, with Jimmy Olsen making his animation debut alongside comic book villains Lex Luthor, Brainiac, Toy Man, Prankster, Titano, and Mr. Mixus Pitlick. And once again, the Adventures of Superman radio personalities and Fleischer voice actors Bud Collier and Joan Alexander were recruited to voice Clark Kent slash Superman and Lois Lane, respectively, with radio show announcer Jackson Beck as Perry White and Jack Grimes returning to his role as Jimmy Olsen. Now, Joan Alexander would actually depart um, for the show's final two seasons and would be replaced by Julie Bennett. By the standards of today's television, the show's uh, violence was noticeably tame, but it did get the attention of ACT, which stood for the Action for Television's or Children's Television. It was founded in 1968, uh, based on improving the quality of television programming offered to children. And uh, this group would disband in 1992, but would kind of be a formidable, formidable foe against a lot of, uh, for lack of a better term, geek television. Because they would definitely criticize uh, G.I. Joe and Transformers later on in the 80s. And uh, here, because of the ire that this group caused, CBS would pull the show and Superman wouldn't be seen again until the Super Friends a few years later. And this wouldn't be the first time CBS, or the last time CBS would throw Superman under the bus, but we'll get to that next week. Now, the show was a very good, straightforward Superman show. And uh, I actually have a very distinct memory of this show. In my preschool years, Bozo the Clown would come on in the mornings and feature the short segments. Each weekday would feature either a Superman or Superboy short and also a segment of the, the Adventures of Batman. And if I'm being honest, I totally fell in love with the Superboy shorts. And perhaps it would be noted, it should be noted somewhere, that I actually became a fan of Superboy prior to being a Superman fan. Because for a long time in my early childhood, I could talk more intelligently, uh, intelligently about Smallville and the Kents and Lana Ling more than the Daily Planet. And the real draw for me, if once again being honest, it was Crypto. He, Superboy had a dog. So this show would actually mark a uh, very big cog in the gears that would later form a Superman fan. And will ironically play out in a very interesting way on next week's episode when we talk about the Ruby Spears Superman from the 80s. 
Now, all 68 Superman segments are available on DVD, and it still stands as an entertaining watch despite the weakness in the animation. Some standout episodes are Superman Meets Brainiac, Superman Meets His Match, and Luthor's Lethal Laser Parts 1 and 2. To date, the Superboy segments have not been released despite uh, an announcement about a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago, that they were to be. But the delay mostly stems from the Seagull versus DC Comics legal battle. But I will tell you this, when those are released, you can bet that this Superman, Superboy fan will be first in line. In Superman news, after a long battle with bone marrow cancer, actor Susanna York has passed away at the age of 72. Uh, it be last Saturday. Uh, York is best known to Superman fans as Lara, wife to Marlon Brando's Jor-El, and the biological mother to Christopher Reeve's Kal-El in Superman the Movie and its sequel Superman 2. Uh, York passed, uh, trained at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art in London and won wide acclaim in uh, many film and stage roles, with her best-known role coming opposite Jane Fonda in 1969's They Shoot Horses, Don't They? Her son, Orlando Wells, remembered her as a fat, amaz- uh, pardon me, quote, an absolutely fantastic mother who was very down-to-earth. She is survived by her two children, as well as two grandchildren, and of course by us, her Superman family and a legion of, of movie fans. In happier news, uh, the Superman coaster at Magic Mountain will reopen in March with some slight tweaks. There will now be cars that run backwards on the twin tracks, and the cars themselves will have a more open feel with some better restraints built in. The coaster, which is known as Superman the Escape, will now be known as Superman Escape from Krypton. And I'll be honest, you won't catch me on this thing. There is zero gravity. I don't roll with that. I don't roll backwards. Sorry, just how I am. Anyway, if you want to get a first look at the animated All-Star Superman movie, there will be two major screenings in New York and L.A. before the movie's February 22nd release date. The movie will screen at the Paley Center in New York City on February 14th, Valentine's Day. I can think of nothing more romantic. And at the Paley Center in Los Angeles on February 17th. Now, tickets are free, but limited, and you must RSVP. So for the New York show, simply send an email to allstarsupermanny at gmail.com. And for the L.A. show, it's allstarsupermanla at gmail.com. And both showings will include media interviews and panel discussion with cast and crew. As for books coming out on shelves this week, uh, Superman, uh, Superman Comics, they'll be hitting your store on January 26th of 2011 will be Action Comics number 897, which continues Lex Luthor's quest for the Black Lantern energy and lead him directly to the Joker. It's written by Paul Cornell, with art by Pete Woods, and covered by David Finch in Bat. That's Bat with two Ts. It'll be $2.99, just like all DC books should be. Now, also on shelves, DC Comics presents Superman, Soul Survivor, which reprints, reprints Legends of the DC Universe number 1 through 3, which were written by James Robinson, and also issue number 39 of that series. Now, this reprint will run $7.99 for 96 pages, which is not bad in my book. And maybe if there's a Superman fan that is kind of on the fence, eh, gift it to them. It's not a bad price. They get a lot of content and kind of know, you know whether they want to jump in or not. 
And there is something I want to mention from last week. Um, the Supergirl mini statue hit the stores, designed by the late Michael Turner and sculpted by Tim Bruckner. This gorgeous statue is five inches tall and will run $79.99. And finally, the one I really wanted to hit from last week was uh, the Alex Ross designed Karen Polinko sculpted Superman Forever mini statue, which hit stores last Wednesday. Uh, of course, it has a special place in my heart, obviously. Uh, this one runs over six inches high and is based on one of the most popular Alex Ross covers ever with Clark opening up his shirt. And uh, obviously, the name of my show came from this comic, so you can bet eventually I'm going to track this down. And this statue also runs $79.99 American. And now for this week's top five. This week's top five was inspired by the recent Infestation crossover, which features G.I. Joe, Transformers, Star Trek, and Ghostbusters meeting for the first time. It occurred to me that if this out-of-the-box mentality towards crossovers could be applied to Superman, then what I'd like to see, I mean, after all, he's met the Quick Bunny, Don Rickles, Jerry Lewis, and Captain Carrot. If that could be applied, why not have Superman meet Star Wars, which is kind of the best of all worlds for me. Uh, Superman is a sci-fi-based superhero with ties to a large galaxy of aliens. So with that in mind, I give you my top five things I would want to see in a Superman-Star Wars crossover. Starting with number five, I want to see Princess Leia rolling Lois Lane's hair into buns. Number four, Lex Luthor and Grand Moff Tarkin team up to unsurp the Emperor. Number three, Steel piloting the Millennium Falcon and maybe fixing the hyperdrive for once. And number two, Jimmy Olsen and Luke Skywalker head to Tashi Station to pick up some power converters. Wackiness ensues. And the number one thing I would need from a Superman Star Wars crossover, two meter wide exhaust port would be no match for heat vision. And we have hit round one, week six in Metropolis Idol at this point. And this week is the Battle of the Metropolis Marvels. Every June at the Metropolis, Illinois Superman Celebration, you'll see a lot of Superman and Supergirls. There's only one official Superman. Now, Scott Cranford held this post for the majority of the 2000s before passing on the cape to the current official Superman, Josh Boltinghouse. And this week, you decide which of these official Supermen moves forward to round two to take on the winner of last week's Battle of the Superboys, who was Gerard Christopher. Christopher beat out John Haynes Newton by 67% of the vote. So votes are open until Friday, and your vote always counts. And this will count us down to the official Superman that you choose. Happy voting! And our journey continues through the comic books of the New Earth Superman. And we made it up to the book's cover dated October 2006. Kicking off the books this week will be Action Comics 842, plotted by Kurt Busiek and Fabian Nicieza, with a script by Kurt Busiek. Pete Woods continues to pencil and ink the book, while Brad Anderson takes care of the colors, and Nick Napolitano does the letters. And the cover was drawn by Dave Gibbons, and colored by Moose Bowman, which may be the most awesome name in comics. And the whole affair was edited by Matt Idelson and Nachi Castro. And this issue is uh, Back in Action Part 2, Action and Reaction. And the issue picks up where we left off last month, with the auctioneer and his robots trying to steal structures and more from the planet, and the auctioneer standing in the San Francisco Bay. 
dwarfing the Golden Gate Bridge. A news report fills us in, adding that nobody knows if this is the real Superman or not, as if it is a big concern. And the Titan's T-surfboard has crashed into the water, which isn't a big loss. Superman flies up to greet his new enemy, but the auctioneer barely takes notice as he's talking on his headset, which Superman melts with his heat vision. Noticing that Superman is a Kryptonian, the auctioneer scans the planet and finds that Kal-El is one of three Kryptonians, including Kara and a mystery third Kryptonian, which we'll find out more about down the road. Earmark that for later. Heroes all around the world begin disappearing, teleporting away, while Nightwing and Firestorm decide to hitch a ride on one of the spider robots that are playing AT-AT across the city of New York. Superman wakes up in a cell that is just like an action figure package, along with multiple heroes and villains. I don't know if any of you... I just gotta stop right there. Collect the DC Universe Classics figures, or uh, any of the Maddie Collector you know, figure, uh, merchandise, like the recent uh, Christopher Reeve Superman. But man, do they bolt those things in there, or what? I mean, the last one I got was a uh, Green Lantern Classics Kyle Rayner. And getting him out of the package was just... I I shouldn't need scissors, and I know they want to prevent you know people stealing these, but I paid for this, and I'm still struggling. They should have uh, you know an official app you know to turn your iPhone into a a switchblade knife or a Swiss Army knife to get them out of the package. And that's a, just a sweet short editorial that I just wanted to put in there for no particular reason other than it, it annoys me. Anyway, meanwhile, Firestorm and Nightwing infiltrate the ship, noting that Firestorm's powers don't seem to be working, noting that the fire on top of his head has now gone out. Now, Superman talks with Skyrocket from the power company and begins concocting a way out as Firestorm and Nightwing find their way into the holding area. For those that don't know Skyrocket, she's Lieutenant Celia Forrestal, who made her first appearance in JLA number 61, and her powers stem from an Argo harness, which isn't any relation to the Kryptonian city, but it absorbs and converts and redirects energy, more or less a harness that turns her into Bishop from the X-Men. And just as they come on the packaging holding Superman, as far as Nightwing and Firestorm, uh, it, ho- it also holds Aquaman, Livewire, of course Skyrocket, Blue Jay, and The Veteran, which is a hero I've never heard of, uh, but as they come across it, it glows, then bursts open, spilling the heroes out. Now, Blue Jay was a former member of the Champions of Angor, and his real name was Jay Abrams. Get it? Blue Jay? And he could shrink to seven inches tall and grow blue wings, which allowed him to fly. He survived the destruction of his home world of Angor, and then came to Earth, where he was a member of the Justice League for a while, and was even the leader of the European branch of the League, He's basically able to shrink and fly and be the punchline of jokes. That's why he's here. And it turns out nobody seems to have powers at this point. But Superman was able to have his new disruptive effect on electronics still, which I'll let slide, but probably should be uh, an editorial note. Anyway, drone robots arrive and begin attacking, but the group fends them off and then debates whether Superman should be the leader after all. Meanwhile, Nightwing hacks one of the ship's computer terminals, because he is Nightwing after all and apparently capable of anything, and Superman goads Livewire into generating a communication frequency to send a communication to the entire world, and more specifically to Mr. Terrific, who has analyzed the schematics of the ship and directs them to a room that looks just like Cloud City, with a giant power core all fired up. 
And Mr. Terrific explains that the power dampening device is a below is below the power coil and that the core can be overloaded for seven seconds. And if a hero is beyond the core, their powers will come back. But if they touch the core, they get incinerated. That's not contrived at all. And while the group argues again about leader, about leadership, Superman steps to the edge and explains that he'll take the leap while the team disrupts the core with precision. Watching from Earth, Lois and Jimmy are shocked, the auctioneer is perplexed, and the military general that told Superman to stand down last issue suddenly realizes that this must be the real Superman. And with that, Superman leaps into the core with his fate uncertain, and the issue ends. As far as my notes, beginning with page one, there's a giant in San Francisco Bay. Superman just smashed a giant robot and flew them into space where they exploded. Why is there any concern if this is the real deal or not? He seems to be taking care of business just fine. And over on page three, we get a perspective of how the other heroes in various parts of the country are faring against the all-out assault. And while we're here, I want to point out one interesting aspect of the auctioneer is that he does act like a businessman, which is supposed to be novel. And much like most of the country, he's plugged into his phone nonstop. And I got to admit, I'm guilty. And he's wheeling and dealing. And it's amusing, but a solid villain, it really just doesn't make. Now, the third Kryptonian mentioned on page four will be dealt with way down the line in a future action comic storyline. My question is, why did the scan not pick up Crypto or Power Girl? Now, I can kind of give you maybe a little bit of leeway, leeway because Power Girl can skate by that because of her Earth 2 heritage, since Earth 1 Kryptonite technically doesn't affect her, but Crypto should have shown up unless he was off-planet at the time. Either way, there should have been some indication. Now, the army is still having problems identifying Superman on page 8, which is starting to get annoying. One redeeming point is that the military considers doing nothing, because the bulk of the metahuman population is being taken. Problem solved. And once again, Nightwing proves his awesomeness by proactively hitching a ride on the robo-spider thingy. His words, not mine. I love Nightwing, but sometimes he's given a little bit more credit than he's really due. And anyway, over on page 11, the action figure style packaging. I've already done my little comment. Every time I get one of those DC Universe Classics figures, it's like a prison break. And another note on the same page, if you really look close at the second panel in the right-hand corner, you may, might, perhaps, get a hint at the third Kryptonian. That's all I'm going to say on it for now, but uh, we'll come back to this issue further down the line. Also, there are cameos from the Crimson Avenger, Heat Wave, Captain Cold, Black Manta, Zatanna, Uncle Sam, and more. Now, when Firestorm's flame went out on page 13, we actually see Firestorm with a regular head of hair rather than the torch on top, which I always kind of wondered about ever since I had the superpowers figure, where it was kind of sculpted to look maybe a little bit like his own hair. And Nightwing explains a little something about how heroes always seem to manage to find themselves in the right location in new territory. Because if he didn't study the principles of, principles of architectural function, the Batman threw him the lame villains. That's nice exposition. I really like that that was actually thought through. On page 18, the shattering glass effect really stands out on this page. And I know it was probably done digitally, but it looks nice, along with the lighting effects emanating from the packages. Uh, Livewire is perfectly written here, and I can practically hear Lori Petty's voice perfectly, just as she was in the animated series. And can anybody tell me who the veteran is? Uh, he has this brief appearance here, but I can't find any trace of him anywhere else. 
And I was able to track down and remember Blue Jay from when he tried to join the Legion and got rejected for being basically shrinking violet with wings. And one other note is on page 22, where the auctioneer ponders what to do with the Statue of Liberty, considering turning it into a pencil sharpener. That's a nice jab at the statue's gift shop, and but why would the auctioneer know what a pencil is? Clearly, he's a tech-based villain, but I'll let the joke slide because it did make me chuckle. And Nightwing knows Tamaranian. On page 24, he states that the computer console understands Starfire's home language, which is a nice callback to the fact that Nightwing nailed Starfire. I'm just getting more and more annoyed by the military characters in this book. Uh, we think it could be, it might be, it might not be Superman. Superman doesn't wear a mask. He is in no way acting out of character. Figure it out. And on page 29, did we really have to have a Cloud City Galaxy Quest ripoff here? I love Star Wars. I love Superman. I'd love to see an actual crossover. But I'm looking at the page, and it doesn't just resemble the chasm where Darth Vader reveals that he's Luke's father. It practically has Luke's dismembered hand falling down it. Don't go halfway into it. I mean, throw it in. If it's a crossover, let's have Luke and Leia show up just like I did in my top five. And on this, as far as the scenario goes on page 30... Oh boy, we can kill the power for 7 seconds, but it takes 20 to get to the threshold. And there are obstacles for heroes to bypass, of course. And then there are overly elaborate, annoying plot devices that are so contrived, they lessen the impact of the story. And this is the latter. And page 32 has the characters arguing about leadership, which of course will play out in the next issue when everybody, even Livewire, rallies around Superman. I know that's technically a spoiler, but if you don't see it coming, then maybe you haven't been reading comics as long, you know, for a while. We get it. Superman's a natural leader, but don't club the reader over the head with it. And finally, on page 34, the military general doesn't believe it's Superman until he does something daring. How about stopping a Kryptonian crystal invasion? Or taking out Luthor in a giant battle suit or saving Alcatraz? Nothing? He has to leap into a pit to earn your approval. It's like the scene in Chasing Amy where Banky is in the lesbian bar, scanning the scene to see women making out with one another, but doesn't clue in what kind of bar it is until he sees two women talking. That's your litmus test? Up yours, awkwardly stereotyped military man, stock character. Up yours. But seriously, let's talk about Pete Woods. His art has been growing steadily better with each passing issue, and he handles a whole flock of characters in the issue and does it relatively seamlessly. Firestorm and Nightwing look top-notch, and C-level characters like Blue Jay even look great. Skyrocket does have some gender confusion, as she looks a little androgynous in some scenes, and Superman's face still looks a little odd, bit odd here and there. But overall, his backgrounds are still solid despite the Cloud City replica. And the book's weak spot is its increasingly uninspired story. It reeks of Nicieza, who can turn a, in a you know he could turn in solid work, but tends to fall back on cheesy plot devices, and ham-fisted over-the-top action over substance. We've seen it in his uh, X Force runs, and plus we are still dealing with the idea that many don't believe that this is a real Superman, which is not only old last issue, but doesn't even track correctly here. Where are the protesters outside the Daily Planet? One panel would have carried that device over. And that's just sloppy storytelling. And the idea that the entire conversation between the captured heroes and Mr. Terrific is being broadcast world worldwide, that's just a lazy device for a useless idea, uh, proving Superman is the real deal. 
So the book's good elements. The art, the humor, they're weighed down by bad storytelling of a fairly lame story that actually, you know, it could have been fun if it hadn't been phoned in. So Action Comics 842 only gets two S-Shields out of five. A fill-in story doesn't have to be treated like a fill-in story, folks. Now we move on to Superman number 655, written by Kurt Busiek, with pencils by Carlos Pacheco, inked by Jesus Marino, and colored by Dave Stewart. Comicraft provides the letters, while Matt Idelson and Nachi Castro again edit the issue. Now this issue is Cold Comfort, part of the Camelot Falls storyline that will run through this book for several issues. And the book opens in Paris, 1659 where Arion awakens after a night of debauchery. And Arion uh, first appeared back in Warlord, number 55. He's uh, an Atlantean Sorcerer Supreme, and he actually predates the sinking of Atlantis. And Arion has been passing himself off as the son of a deceased noble, but he's awakened by a prophetic dream and utters the words, Camelot Falls. So, looking into a crystal ball... Arion sees the present day in a plane bound for Kazakhstan, holding one mild-mannered reporter, Clark Kent. And on that plane, Clark is reading a novel with microdots embedded, and the microdots hold an entire text of books in a single period. And by period, I mean the punctuation. And he's accosted by Lowell Jeffries, who writes for a Metropolis tabloid called Action Bulletin News. And he's really... uh, nosy about Carol and Llewellyn, who Clark is en route to meet, as we learned from last issue. And Clark blows Jeffries off, but reflects back on a meeting he had with Lana Lang, who had just taken over as CEO of LexCorp after Lex was outed, ousted. And Lana told Clark that the company is in dire straits, which we already knew, and she isn't entirely sure she can save it. But she's really well connected, she has a lot of respect, having been the wife of the vice president. And Clark, or Lana also adds that she and Pete are now divorced, and Pete has returned to Smallville with their son. And the weird thing is she does point out that Pete refuses to call her son, their son Clark by, by his name. Now, Clark Kent assures her that he, you know, he's there for her, both as Clark and Superman. And in the conversation, Clark hears a fire and goes back to, into action as Superman, which brings us back to the plane where Clark uses his telescopic vision to scope out, scope out, Iagoos, Iagoos, if I've said that wrong, I apologize, but it looks like Iagoos, which is a city in Kazakhstan, and the place is devastated. Clark um, kind of manages to make out uh, Dr. Llewellyn's voice calling for him, and he slips off the plane as Superman and swoops down to the ground where he finds Dr. Llewellyn injured with cracked, cracked ribs and a fractured leg. Now, Callie, as Clark calls Dr. Llewellyn, notes that she always knew there was a connection between Clark and Superman. Superman rescues her and then gets to work rescuing other injured and people in peril. As he is uh, flying around, Superman is punched to the ground by a large shadowy figure, and Callie begins to explain what Superman is up against via Superman's superhero. Basically, an abandoned Soviet lab was found with a creature in stasis surrounded by a nutrient bath, kind of like a Bacta tank. And the Kazakh people... I uh, just wanted this behemoth out of their country, but they also knew this was something they couldn't really safely deal with, so they called in the government, who called in Callie. Because as an, an arcanobiologist, you know, she's kind of perfectly suited to study what the lab notes called Subject 17, and Subject is spelled with a K. 
the government uh, wanted to hide the fact that they couldn't handle it, but Kelly used a press conference to kind of get Clark to Kazakhstan. And then with that, Clark flies at Subject 17, and the battle begins. Back in 1659, Ariane watches as you know the battle begins, what we've been seeing, and states that they just don't know what they're tampering with. So he suits up and opens a portal to our time, planning on fixing the situation before it's too late. And that is where the issue ends. So notes, beginning with page one. There's a ton of barely concealed nudity. And uh, for some reason, Arion being naked doesn't really hit me the same way as a scantily clad Lois is. You know, I did get a couple of comments here and there about my criticism of Lois's, you know, state of undress. Now maybe uh, it's because seeing Lois nude is like seeing my mom or my sister. I just, I don't entirely sexualize her. And if Superman's going to be madly in love with a woman for his the generations he has been, there has to be a sense of, uh, for lack of a better word, purity. And that's kind of a hard one to apply to Lois, but maybe more of a heart of gold. And the barely concealed butt shot on page two. Bit overboard, though. I would still like to think that a younger reader could pick up a Superman book without this kind of concern. Because, I mean, a new generation of readers is born every minute. And, you know, look back at Superman the Animated Series, they were able to have... They were able to toe the line between a show adults could watch and a show that kids could enjoy, too. So that's my soapbox for this episode. Now, moving on, uh, Lowell Jeffries of the Action News Bulletin makes his first and only appearance here, which is a long way to go for a simple exposition. And one note, the the copy of the paper he holds up for Clark, the act- issue of Action News Bulletin, it actually has the cover from Action Comics 841 on it which we covered uh, last episode. And that signals that the whole back-in-action storyline precedes this to some extent. Now, Lana makes her first full New Earth Era debut on page 7, but the best moment is this awkward silence between Lana and Clark on page 9. And it's clear, and it'll get clearer, that Lana still has a massive torch for Clark. And Clark is keenly aware of it, just like the readers are. It's just, in this scene, it's an 800-pound gorilla right in the middle of Lana's office. And Clark moves to Pete, who is oddly absent in the New Earth era. When I thought about this, I don't remember a really solid appearance he made. And I really hate that this important character is getting no respect. I mean, not a, I mean, also in the Smallville TV show and in the comics, they just kind of dismiss him. And I know Chloe's cool. I'm a Chloe fan. But you can't really dismiss how important Pete was, especially to the Silver Age Superboy. When you think about it, in the Silver Age, Pete knew Clark's identity, independent of Clark. Clark didn't even know he knew. And yet, Pete kept it, and Pete kind of watched out for Clark. So that was just a neat dynamic, and I just don't see that importance. He's just getting degraded. And, uh, well, moving on to page 11 and 13, I can't help but wonder if Clark actually hears a fire... Or if he's actually just needed at the fire, you know, if, if it's something that really needed his attention. Or if he's just really trying to get out of that awkwardness between him and Lana. And that's kind of, uh, yeah, it's kind of an interesting scene. It definitely stood out to me for this issue. Now, moving to less awkward territory is Clark's bailing out of a plane at page on page 19 via the landing gear compartment. Won't there be a problem when the plane deboards at the site and Clark isn't there? Security watches that. 
These are things you have to think about when you have a secret identity. Now, Carolyn Llewellyn knowing or suspecting Clark's secret identity is just annoying. Like Smallville, where Clark kept his secret from pretty much nobody at this point. And we get another slight glimpse at Subject 17 on page 24, but not a clear shot. And this panel really just makes me think of the early panels of Doomsday's first appearances. And page 25 has a great panel of an angry sloop Superman flying towards the reader. And on page 29, we get the first full appearance of Subject 17, who will be an increasingly important character to this storyline. He has a Doomsday meets Frankenstein quality, and it's a pretty simply designed monster, which is not a bad thing. And really, that is that is all the little notes I have of this issue. Uh, there are some mechanics that don't quite work here. For instance, the bulk of the story is sort of a flashback, yet we have a Lana flashback, which uh, creates a flashback within a flashback, which rarely works. I think To Kill a Mockingbird was one of the few really good examples of that, which is incredibly ironic since that's Clark's favorite book. Now, a small reconfiguration could have really fixed this just by putting the Lana scene at the start of the issue and going chronologically. Um, on a good note, Pacheco rocked this issue with some startlingly good uh, Superman shots. And Dave Stewart's colors went up a notch in my, more in my book with the reddish hue to some of the scenes just to indicate Arion's crystal ball. That's kind of what helped track that was that you know reddish hue. And so it did kind of stay cohesive, but just... A small tweak could have made it better. Overall, though, the issue was uh, maybe a bit too jumbled. I mean, we had the very beginnings of a story with no real payoff in the issue, and Superman doesn't meet his enemy until the end of the issue, and Subject 17 kind of appears with very little fanfare. So I give this issue 2.5 S-Shields out of 5 for really just lack of focus. And our last stop this week is Superman Batman number 29, Written by Mark Verheiden, with art by Ethan Van Skyver, colors by Guy Major, lettered by Rob Lay, and edited by Eddie Berganza, with Janine Schaefer. And the issue opens with Marsha Manhunter in his black costume, arriving at the Batcave, and being warmly greeted, pun intended, by Batman dousing him with a flamethrower. Batman tries to explain that he was just testing John to make sure he was the real thing, but Martian Manhunter doesn't accept the explanation and refuses to help Batman, despite the fact that he may know something. Meanwhile, at Star Labs, Green Lantern and uh, John Stewart and Dr. Sarah Charles examine John's ring as he's noticed something off about it. And while examining it, John notes that, you know, it's been emitting a signal, a faint signal, and then a green giant fist, pardon me, giant green fist. No ho 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 here. But the fist smashes through into the complex, knocking John and Sarah down unconscious and stealing John's ring. And we get a brief scene in the Batcave of Alfred telling Bruce that he has a message from Hal Jordan. And before we catch up, uh, right before we catch up with Clark and Metropolis, who's working away at the Daily Planet. And Lois walks in, looking like she was straight off of a Kurt Swan page, and begins ranting before the real Lois comes into the room and knocks the doppelganger out. And the shapeshifter turns into the caveman from Krypton and begins tearing up the offices, forcing Clark into action. And a brief fight takes place before Hal Jordan, Green Lantern, shows up and contains the shapeshifter. And Hal tells Clark to meet him at a government-run holding facility near Edwards Air Force Base. When Clark shows up, he finds Bruce grumbling about Hal being late as usual, and they both realize it's a trap. 
a green power construct knocks Superman and Batman around, with Batman falling into the base and at the feet of a giant pink alien. Superman takes on Hal as Batman defeats the giant alien by electrocuting the monster and grabs Hal by the collar. And Hal admits it wasn't him, it was the ring, and removes his power ring. As Hal explains the mind control of the ring and how whatever had him would see Superman and Batman join them or die, another green power signature rips through the scene and the issue ends with Kilowog standing on Superman's head with Green Lantern and Batman on the ground. And Kilowog states that when you defy the ring, you defy him. To be continued. Now, I bought most of the issues in this story to complete my run. And uh, reading it for this for this show, it, it is literally the first time I'm reading them all the way through. I'm not saying I wouldn't have bought them just to complete my Superman-Batman run, but I certainly would have been mad about doing so with this issue if I'd been reading it at the time. Because uh, this is not Superman or Batman. I'm going to call shenanigans on this issue in some major ways, and I kind of uh, ran this by a friend of mine, and his literal response was, who wrote this crap? So here's where it went wrong. First, Batman fires a flamethrower at the Martian Manhunter. Okay, Bruce is extreme and paranoid, but he's always in control. He would never, never shoot first and ask questions later. This is bad characterization in a big, big way, and not the only one in the issue. How about the the fact that Clark doesn't recognize his own wife on page 10? I mean, Lois comes in walking walking in uh, Silver Age style. Uh, pillbox hat and everything. And Clark doesn't realize it isn't her. And then on page 14, he only change, he openly changes from Clark Kent to Superman right in the middle of the Daily Planet news floor. Emergency or no, he would use some super speed, if anything, just in case a wandering eye catches him. Bad, Mark Verheiden. Bad. And again, with the bad character work on page 19, with Bruce casually waiting for Clark and Hal to show up in a desolate location. Okay, so Bruce, who really still holds no full trust in Hal, following the whole parallax thing, and plus with a shapeshifter out on the loose, blindly walks into an obvious trap, and the blind, on a simple invitation to meet message from Hal Jordan. Okay, these are major flaws, people. This isn't a slight overlooking of a detail. Um, I mean, also, Batman didn't notice in the previous issue that John was still in his old-school bare-chested costume, but where's the more updated look now? Which, that would be an overlooking of a detail. So the whole story just gets sucked into this vacuum pretty quick and ruins the entire issue. Even with Ethan Van Skyver drawing Green Lanterns like you and I drop breaths, and just some stunning shots of the giant alien creature, the book just gets dragged down by major character flaws. The book is called Superman Batman, and neither really appears in this issue. Just a bastardized knockoff version of the heroes. And you know what it reminds me of? The old April Fool's issue. Uh, issues they used to do of Superman where you know, Mixus Pitalik and Lex Luthor would become their friends, knowing the secret identity. I mean, it was like a joke. And this book would get one and a half stars. Or maybe even one star, if not for Ethan Van Skyver's glorious GL art. Fairweather fan that I am, I still respect that the guy brought his A-game to this issue. So with that, bringing it up a notch, I give it an even two stars. Well below average, and really, this issue is for completionists only. And uh, that pretty much wraps up this episode of Superman Forever Radio. 
next week, uh, we move on to the 1980s Ruby Spears Superman cartoons, uh, go on to the November issues, and some special guests stop by. So download, tune in to listen, and if you would, uh, kindly leave me a review at iTunes. Uh, if you have any comments, you can always email me at mail at supermanforever.com. And you can call us, uh, leave, call me and leave a message at 703-95-SUPER, which is 703-957-8737. And you can also find me on Twitter. I am at Superman Forever. That's Superman, the number four, and ever. And I am on there sporadically. And, of course, you can find me at supermanforever.tumblr.com. And I will, uh, and of course, at... Uh, Fortress of Bailey 2 slash Superman Podcast Network, where you can find this show and many other Superman podcasts. And uh, I will, with that, I'll see you next week when the never-ending battle continues. Superman is copyright and trademark DC Comics. All related characters are also trademark and copyright DC Comics. This show is done for entertainment purposes only and does not make a profit. For any information, please visit www.supermanforever.com. And thank you so much for listening.